Father, I thank you. I thank you that you love people who are broken. Because we're broken, God, and thank you that you love us. Father, I thank you that when we are weak and we just don't have the power to change ourselves, to make ourselves right, to rescue ourselves, you love us and you're kind. And you gave us Jesus to rescue us. And Lord, I pray that we as your people would live that kind of love into this community, being your hands and feet. And I pray that we would love people, love children who are marginalized, who are recipients of abuse, children who have gone through things that we honestly just cannot even imagine. God, I pray that they would be well. Lord, I pray that they would have people like us to step in and care for them. And Lord, I pray for those who have chosen to take an incredible step of of generosity and love and care and they've opened their home to children. They're foster parents or they're adopted parents and and they've they've taken a step out in obedience. I pray they would find the life-giving power of Jesus at work in their home. I pray that they would experience your resurrection power, that that child and those parents would know your love and your grace to them today. And so, Father, millions, millions of little boys and girls in our country are hurting today. And Lord, thank you that you love them. And I'm just asking you, would you help us to love them like you do? Lord, I pray you'd help us to step into doing something as you would lead us to do. So God, we pray for those kids. We pray for those that care for them. And we pray we would be among that number. And Father, we ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. If you guys have your Bibles, turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, maybe you don't own a Bible, there should be a paperback Bible there in the seat back in front of you. Um, We're going to look at a couple of verses today. Continuing the study that we've been in in the book of First Peter, so we're in First Peter chapter two, and I just want to let you know that um, a couple of weeks ago, God began to 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 expose something about me. He began to expose a, a dynamic in my life. I, I I've noticed that I've become almost addicted to keeping up with the headlines in national and international news. I've got an app on my phone, and it's a news app. And and when I when I'm doing just all kinds of things, when I'm standing standing in line at the supermarket or doing some other thing, I've noticed that I've almost started reflexively grabbing that phone and opening up that app just to see what's going on in the world. And quite honestly, I've had to be repentant over that over the last couple weeks, just laying that aside and saying, God, you know what's going on in the world. I don't necessarily need to keep up with it like this. But there is one thing that I've noticed in that as I've, as I've looked at the various headlines that, that, that most of what's going on in our world today, what's being reported is being reported to us in the language of war. That there's a battle that's going on and it's in various forms and, and various fronts. So for instance, there's this written language. It's a wartime language that's being used to describe so many different dynamics in our world. I wrote a few of them down. There's a battle to be healthy and it's a battle that's waged against fast food and the second love of my life, ice cream. 
Now, there's, there's the battle to save the environment that's being waged against fossil fuels and other things like that. There's a, a battle to keep our schools safe, and it's being waged against various things from guns to certain groups of people having access to them. There's the battle against terrorism, and it's being waged against extremist groups. There's the battle on Capitol Hill, and it's being waged between Democrats and Republicans, and in a world that's just marked by war and words that are thrown around all the time describing the various forms of conflict and battle in this world. I'm concerned that most people are oblivious to the most important and pervasive war of them all. As a matter of fact, it is the war, I believe, that is underneath all the other conflict in our world. The war that's waging all around us in ways that we may not even be aware. And for those who are aware that it even exists, I'm concerned that even we live most of our lives like it doesn't exist. And that's what the message of this passage of Scripture is about. It's about this war, the war behind the scenes that's creating all the other conflict that exists. You you might even say it's a hidden war. So this morning we want to expose that war. We want to look at what the the Bible says to us as we're called to live within it. Look at 1 Peter chapter 2. And I'm going to begin reading in verse 11. We're only going to do 11 and 12 as we prepare our hearts for the Lord's Supper. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11 says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, and we've talked about that phrase a lot in this study, our true home is heaven. We're, we are called to live like we're pilgrims on a journey in this earth. We're ambassadors in another nation. He says that language, sojourners and exiles, live that out. And he says this, I urge you to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. This is the word of God for us this morning. And what you see is the teaching of this passage is pretty straightforward. If you'll just read those words, you'll get a good idea of what it's all about. He's saying there is a war that is being waged right now, and it's a battle for your soul. That there is genuinely a war going on this very moment, and it is a war for your soul. Something wants to destroy you. Something wants to destroy your very soul, which means your greatest threat at any given moment is not financial, it's not environmental, it's not emotional, it's not physical, it's spiritual. Your greatest threat, it it comes through the form of an attack that is waged against your very soul. And Peter says that it's, it's launched from a place that he calls the passions of your flesh. So there's a war against your soul being launched against what he says is the passion of your flesh. So the question is, what are the passions of the flesh? I mean, what's he referring to? Well, there are some passages of Scripture throughout the rest of the New Testament that describe what it looks like to live in the passions of the flesh. So you guys can write this down. We're not going to turn there. Galatians chapter 4. verses 19 through 21 describe what's referred to there as passions of flesh. And it gives this list of what it looks like to live out of the passion of our flesh. And here's some things on that list it says. It says it looks like sexual immorality, impurity, idolatry, sorcery, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, 
envy, drunkenness, and the list literally goes on and on. So those kinds of things represent some of what Peter means when he says, hey, there's a a war being launched from these passions of our flesh. Sometimes it looks like fits of anger or jealousy or envy. Sometimes it looks like impurity in our thoughts, words, deeds, idolatry. It looks like all different kinds of things. But I want us to be careful that when we think of passions of our flesh, many of us jump to a very clear picture in our own lives. And if we're not careful, we'll neglect something that's a little bit more subtle than just those things. For instance, many of us would know, hey, I don't think idolatry is right. I don't, I don't think envy is okay. I don't think fits of anger are okay. You would acknowledge that. Here's my concern. Many of us fall prey to the battle against our souls that's launched from a place that isn't quite as obvious. Let me tell you what I mean. That word passion is not a negative word. There are times where it's, it's translated lust, and that obviously feels negative to us. There are other times where that same word is actually translated as desire. It's just talking about about desire. You want certain things. So for instance, Philippians chapter 1 verse 23, Paul's writing there and he uses that exact same word that's translated from the Greek as passion in 1 Peter. In Philippians 1 23, he says, my desire, same word, my desire is to depart and be with Christ for that is far better. So that word desire is the same Greek word there for, for passion. And obviously the desire there that he uses in Philippians 1 is a good desire. It's the very best kind of desire. So I want you to be aware of this. Passion, desire isn't wrong in and of itself. As a matter of fact, God made you, God made me with various desires, certain appetites that we have. So for instance, we have desires for food, for shelter, for relationship, for sex, for joy, for self-preservation. And you need to know God gave you those desires. And those desires aren't inherently wrong. They're not bad for us. God made them and he said they're good when he made them for us. But here's what happens. Those desires that are, that are a part of who we are as people, something happens where our flesh comes alongside those desires and the flesh grabs hold of them and twists them and changes them into something that does become bad for us. So our flesh, you need to know, it's referring to our bodies, but it's referring to every part of us that is needing and still waiting to be transformed by Jesus. So for instance, some of you guys know you need to get a new body. Some of you guys know you really, really need to get a new body. Because here's the story. The one you're in ain't lasting forever. They're falling apart. Can I get a witness? That's all I'm saying, man. I'm sore and I've got a sore back. I don't even know where it came from today. I'm saying, actually I do. It's a thousand nights of ice cream in a row. But the story is this. We've got bodies that are falling apart. And they need to be made new. Because they're not going to last forever. So if we're really going to live forever... Our bodies need to be transformed. That's part of what Peter means when he's talking about our flesh. But it's not just our bodies. It's also our way of thinking. 
Our way of thinking represents a fallen or fleshly or earthly way of thinking. There are patterns of flesh. There are appetites and cravings that we naturally have that have totally gone out of control. And so when Peter says flesh, he's referring to our bodies, but something beyond our bodies, the way our minds work, the way we naturally live, the cravings that we have for certain things. He says all of those become part of a fallen flesh that's disconnected from God and that's wrapped up in what the Bible calls sin. And so when Peter says our flesh, he's saying there's part of you that needs to be transformed by Jesus. It still is awaiting rescue or salvation. And that part of you, your flesh, your mind, your way of thinking, your appetites that are out of control, that becomes the battleground in your life where you are finding a war being waged against your soul. And the attack comes in the form of desire. Another way of saying that is this. Every, there's, every one of us has a part of us that's the I want this part of us. And so we, 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 we feel, I want this or I want that. And that's something deep inside of us. And that part of us is susceptible to a sinful, destructive attack that turns, I want this from a benign, innocent, I want this into a terrible passion of our flesh that wants to destroy us. Let me give you an example. I said earlier, that the desire for food and shelter is a good thing. So there's nothing wrong for you guys that want food and shelter. As a matter of fact, you should want food and shelter and there'd be something wrong if you didn't. And what that means then is for most of us in our world, if we want food and shelter, we normally need to have money to get it. Is that how it works in the world you live? That's how it works where I live. We need to have money. So then we get this desire for money. That becomes a self-preservation that is good. We need food, we need shelter, we need money to get food and shelter, and none of those things are evil or bad in themselves. And so we have this desire that's innocent in a sense, or that's benign in a sense. Food, shelter, money, and I'm going to tell you this, those desires and even the things that they bring are not inherently wrong. So you need to hear me say this out loud, okay? So are you listening? Okay, whether you're listening or not, I'm saying it. It is not wrong for you to have food. Thank you, Lord, that it is not wrong for us to have food. I just felt over, over. It's not wrong to have food. It's not wrong to have a house. It's not wrong to have a car. It's not wrong to have a vacation. It's not wrong to have a boat. It's not wrong to have a motorcycle. Nothing inherently wrong with having those things. Do you receive that? Okay. Here's the deal though. There's this good desire for, for the basics of life like food and shelter that turns into an understanding, I, I'm gonna work so that I can have money, so that I can have those basic things. But what happens with that desire that's not wrong in and of itself is that the fallen part of us attaches itself to that okay, benign, good desire. And the fallen part of us twists that desire, say, for money and turns it into a thing called greed and materialism. 
It turns a thing that, that, that becomes so out of control that our desire for money no longer really is about the basics of life. It's much more about the 10,000 things that we don't think we can live without that we actually can. Things like smartphones and bigger boats and luxury cars and nicer homes and designer clothes. And remember, I'm not saying there's anything inherently wrong. I'm saying our appetite twists our desire for those things to where we begin to feel and think and live like we can't live without them. God forbid I'd have to have a 20-foot boat and not a 30-foot boat. I can't live like this. This desire in us that we would never express in those kind of terms, but the disappointment of our hearts when we don't get it is just as real. And that desire that's twisted for stuff, for 10,000 marketing schemes that we've bought into, that thing robs us of satisfaction. Even when you get it, it doesn't, doesn't satisfy. Many of you know what that's like. And you work, and you work, and you work. You started working to get money for the basics of life, but now you're working in an endless rat race pursuit of more and more and more stuff. And ultimately what happens is we become slaves to our stuff. Anybody know that feeling? I don't own stuff, now it owns me. I bought a house, and I worked to buy the house, and now I think the house has given me work. My neighbor saw, you, you guys remember several years ago, we, we had this crazy thing that happened to us. Emily, Emily somehow discovers ways to get us into these kinds of things. It's su- super cool. But we, we were on television, and a television show redid our backyard. Crazy, crazy thing. Well, they put in all these plants in our backyard. It was absolutely incredible. My neighbor, like the dude from Tool Time, peeks up over the picket fence after they're done, right? He's like, hey, Titus. And I say, hey, man, how you doing, Cecil? He said, you know what they gave you? And I'm thinking, a beautiful backyard? He says, nah, a job. And I, and I was like, thanks, man. I appreciate your encouragement. Write that down in a note, man. Thank you. You, you should go to my church. No, I'm kidding. Uh, that was a joke. That was a joke. Here's the story. We become slaves to our stuff where we don't own stuff. Stuff owns us. And then our entire life becomes the stressed out unsatisfying pursuit of bigger and more and more. And here's what's happening. Even if we don't realize it, that stuff has now become an idol. It's an idol. We, we treat it like it's worth our lives, like it's worth our affection and our desire, and it's, it's worth our time and our attention for our whole lives to basically revolve around this stuff. We go to work so we can maintain the stuff or get some more of it. We come home and work to, to, to care for it. All the, we go to bed and we wake up so anxious about it all, and our stuff has become our God. And here's the deal. If our God isn't the one true God, then we aren't followers of Jesus. And that's just one example for how the flesh takes a desire that was benign and innocent and it twists it because that's what it does into something that is destructive to cause us in this war against our souls to to step into a dynamic that causes us to become godless idolaters who want more and more and more of any given thing. And our appetite, our desire, gets out of control. I want more money. I want 
sex. I want popularity. I want a better body. I want acceptance. I want, I want, I want. Every good desire gets hijacked by our flesh, becomes a battlefront for our souls. And this passage of Scripture says, beware. Matter of fact, he gives you a command, and the command is abstain. Don't go down the road. The road of what? Of desire. Passions of the flesh. And here's how that should hit you. How in the world do I abstain from a desire? You guys might remember several weeks ago we looked at chapter 2 verses 1 through 3. And there the command is that we would crave the Bible because of the goodness of Jesus that we find there. The, The command was to crave and what we talked about is that you cannot create a craving. So for all of you who hate liver and onions, when you hear me tell you, crave liver and onions for lunch, you say, I can't do that. I actually think it's morally wrong personally, but I'm just saying you cannot do it. You can't create the craving. So, so what do we do? What do we do when this, this war against our souls is to abstain from desires and we can't make ourselves desire what we should desire? What do we do? Here's what we do. We call on Jesus to save us from our desires. We turn to Christ and say, Jesus, you have to do something in me because I can't make it happen for myself. Let me show you that in a couple of places. Go back to chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. 1 Peter 1, 8 and 9. What we do to abstain from the passion of our flesh is to pursue Jesus by faith, trusting and depending on Him. 1 Peter 1, 8 through 9 says this, though you have not seen Him, you love Him. He's talking about Jesus. You haven't seen Jesus? I haven't seen Jesus. And though you don't see Jesus, you love Him, though you don't now see Him. Now look at this. You believe in Him. You believe Jesus is who He says He is. You believe Jesus will do what He says He will do. And because you believe that or you have faith in that, it says, and you rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Look at verse 9. Obtaining the outcome of of your faith, what it was that you were depending on Jesus to do, the outcome of your faith, look what it is, the salvation of your souls. What's under attack in this war with the passion of your flesh? Your soul. How is your soul going to be rescued from these attacks of your own desire? By Jesus. Jesus has to create a new desire in you. Jesus has to stir up affections that you can't stir up. Jesus has to do something in you that you can't do for yourself. Christ has to live in you in a way that shows that he can raise dead people to brand new life and give people who don't have desires, they should have those exact desires. I call this the I need you Jesus moments I have every day of my life. It's the reminder that I have to abstain from desires of my flesh that are natural for me and I have to look to Jesus and depend on Christ to live in me in a way I can't live. Galatians chapter 2 verse 20 says, I am crucified with Christ and yet I live, yet not I, but Jesus Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. If we are going to live this life he's calling us to live, to abstain from desires, it will only happen as Jesus does it and we depend on the power of Jesus to do it. That's what separates real Christianity from empty religion, the power of Jesus. And let me just give you an example from my recent life. 
Some of you might remember last week, I've got to tell you, I never count on you guys remembering anything that I've said. I treat you all as though you're my children. So let me remind you of what I said last week. Last week, I, I, just talked, I talked about the fact the Bible describes us as a nation of people, which means we're countrymen with one another, which means that I can't win if you lose, right? And I even described the fact that when I first got married, Emily and I would every once in a while get into an argument, and I would want to win the argument. Not that she ever lost, but then, then God reminded me, you can't win if she loses. That's not how marriage works. That's not how you're made to live in relationship. Well, let me just warn you, all you who are going to be preaching publicly soon. When you use an example like that in your marriage, there's one thing that you can count on happening that week. What do you think it could be? This week, Emily and I had a little uh, difference of opinion, you might say. It was about something that I said. Um, I said something, and miraculously, she not only knew what I said, but what I meant. And so I said, here's what I said, but why'd you say that? I guess you must have meant this. Of course I didn't mean it. Yes, you did, or you wouldn't have said it. It was something similar to that. So here we're in this moment of saying, I didn't mean that. That's not what I was trying to say, and I don't know. This is, does this happen in anyone else's marriage? I mean, is it just me? No, okay, all right, whatever. So you're all looking for a new church home, whatever. Here's what I'm saying. I have to leave the house in the middle of that convo. Gotta go to a, I gotta go to a, a meeting with a person from this church family, of course, who probably wants to know some wisdom from their pastor. So there I am. And as I'm, as I'm in that moment, I'm thinking to myself, and this, this thing wells up within me, it's called Pride. Okay? Here's the pride. I want to prove I'm right. <laughs> I want to prove I'm right. It's selfishness. I want to get my way. It's fleshly desire. I want to prove I'm right. I want to get my way. Don't tell me what to think, woman. I want to get my way. Walk out the door, right? I'm sitting in my car and I'm texting out the most brilliant dissertation on my point. Right? Oh, this is going to be so good. And because it's in writing, what's she going to do? Here's the story. Um, one, pray for your pastor. Two, uh, the Holy Spirit reminds me, right? There's a different life I'm called to live. And it's not a life that's expressing pride. It's a life that's killing pride. I'm not called to live like that. I'm called to live in a way that serves my wife, in a way that loves my wife, in a way that cares for my wife. I'm called to love my wife that way. And of course, she's called to love me in the same way. And listen, this wasn't a really, really big deal or I wouldn't be talking about it in front of you when I got to go to lunch with her. But the story is, it's enough of my heart to be able to tell you in that moment, here's what I knew. I couldn't feel like I wanted to not fight. I couldn't feel like I didn't care about proving my point. To the point that I I looked up the phrase that I used on the internet to make sure I knew exactly what it meant and maybe she was right after all. That's all I'm saying, okay? But in that moment, I'm saying, why am I doing this? So they're going to text my wife, my, my point. And I'm thinking, I don't want to do this, but I want to. And you know what I, I knew in that moment? Here's what I knew in that moment. 
The command was not just to act like I love my wife. Mm-mm. The command was to actually love her. Amen. And here's what I thought. <laughs> I need you, Jesus. I need you. Amen. Delete, delete, delete. I need you, Jesus. Oh, I need you. And so does Emily. I need you too. <laughs> and Jesus came through. We're going to make it after all. It's awesome, yeah. It was in doubt. And you said it never last. Here's the deal. You know what that is? That's called following Jesus. That, that, that is the Christian life. It's 10,000 of those moments every single day. It's 10,000 different desires to live in a certain way, to prove a certain thing, to act out a certain thing. And, and then we can't do what we're called to do, so we need Jesus. And what faith does is believe that Jesus will literally give you the power to live the life you cannot live and the life that only He can, to, to, to prove that His resurrection power is enough for you and your marriage and your family and your job and the places where you live, work, learn, and play. He's called you to live it out and you can't do it and He will do it in you. If you will depend on Him, if you'll trust in Jesus, if you will live an I need you Jesus life. And that's the next connection to the verse that comes right after. Verse 12, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. Gentiles, there's a phrase to people who are not followers of Jesus. So he says, keep your conduct. No, notice something here. He starts by saying you need a change of desire if you're going to have a change of life. The thing you need is not behavior modification, it's, it's life transformation in Jesus, but he commands, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. Now look at this, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, when they say, man, you're weird, why you love Jesus? Man, why do you do that? Why are you a part of this? Why, why do you talk like that? Why do you act like Jesus is real and alive and here in this room? Why do you talk? That's weird, man. It's awful. When they talk about you like you're an evildoer, it says one day then they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Yes. You see what he's saying there? When you live this out, when you abstain from the desires of your sinful brokenness, the patterns that you can't break out on your own. And Jesus starts to live in you like he can, alone can live. Your life begins to change because your heart's begun to change. And as Jesus changes your heart, he changes your life. And as Jesus changes your life, he begins to do something. And that is to display how excellent Jesus is by the way you live. And one day, one day something's going to happen. Those people who are not believers of Jesus Christ are going to glorify God because of your good deeds. Now, I don't know if you've ever been struck by that, but that's always sounded a little weird to me. Like, why would they see the good things I do and glorify God? Wouldn't they glorify me? Like, if you saw somebody out doing something good, you're not going to naturally just say, man, that guy's God is awesome. You're going to say, man, that guy's awesome. How is it that our good deeds glorify God? Because there's a day that's coming, referred to here as the day of visitation. And that day of visitation is when Jesus Christ really comes back to this earth and he makes everything plain. And the one thing that he's gonna make so plain is that every good thing that occurred through your life, the really good things, not the ways you acted like you were good, the ways you actually were good and God honoring, all those things happened because Jesus did it through you. Yes. And you won't get the glory he will. 
It'll be plain that the life you lived was a life that was fueled by the power of Jesus living in you. And on that day, it will be undeniable to every man, woman, and child that Jesus is who He says He is. And that He does what He says He will do and that He did it in your life. And He did it in the good things you did because you will look back and say, I didn't even naturally want to do that. I wanted to do something else, but Jesus changed my desires. And Jesus changing my desires changed my life. And every good thing that occurred in me and through me occurred by the grace and the power that Jesus alone can give. And unbelievers will proclaim Jesus Christ. Some will proclaim Jesus on this side of Christ's return. They'll encounter your life and they'll ask you the why. Why do you do that? And you'll say, let me tell you about Jesus. And they'll believe that Christ is excellent because they'll see his excellence in your life. And some won't believe. But on the day that Jesus returns, there will be no more unbelieving. There will be no more denying. Christ will be made known and every eye will behold him. And the Bible says, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father and he proved it in your life. So here's the, here's the call, guys. Live like you're at war. Live like you're at war, like you're in a battle against the fallenness of your own flesh. A fallenness that literally wants to destroy you. A desire that would shipwreck your soul. And your only hope is Jesus. That Jesus would be for you what you can't be for yourself. That Jesus would change you in every way you need to be changed but can't. That Jesus would raise you up to a brand new life that you can't live but He can in you. That Jesus would show Himself through the way you live as you trust and depend on Him and that those around you would see my life has changed and my life has changed because of Jesus. And that's what brings us to the Lord's Supper. We're going to take this bread that represents the body of Jesus that was broken on the cross. And we're going to take this cup that represents the blood of Jesus that was poured out like a sacrifice, which was a sacrifice for our sins. And as we take this, this I hope you've, you've wondered at times why it is that it's, it's food. Like, like when we come around the Lord's Supper, we, we, we take a supper of, of food. Why do we eat food? We eat food because we are saying, we are acknowledging, I need this to live. So I, I eat it. I take it. And what we are saying when we gather around this is, I need Jesus to live. I need Jesus to give me power and strength that I don't have. So as we come around this table, this is an acknowledgement. I need Jesus. I need Jesus. And it's a celebration. And I have him. Christ Christ lives in me because I'm trusting in him. So I'm going to ask you to bow your heads right, right now in these moments as we're preparing to observe the Lord's Supper. And some of you know the patterns of your own life where you'd say, man, I can't change this about me. This is brokenness. This is sin. I've tried a thousand different ways. None of them work. Friend, you need Jesus. You need Jesus to rescue you, to save you. Would you just call on Jesus right now? Jesus, save me. I believe you lived a life I can't live and died the death. I should have died that you were buried and rose again. And Jesus, by your power, raised me up to new life. I, I need you, Jesus. Save me, rescue me. 
Some of you would say there are patterns of my brokenness that just dog me. And maybe you've been focusing on your behavior and not on Jesus. Asking Him to change your desires. So would you just right now, just would you ask Jesus to transform your desire that you would be passionate to want what you should want the way you should want it? And would you also remember that we gather around this table as a family, not just as individuals? I'm just going to ask you right now, would you pray for the people who are seated around you? You may, you may know them well. They may be your spouse, your kids. You may never have met them at all. You might not even know their name. But would you pray that they would trust in Jesus? That they would depend on Christ? that they would be confident that Jesus is who he says he is and that he'll do what he says he will do and that they would live like, like that's true. Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you that in this battle for our own souls where many of us feel... We feel the weight of our own brokenness. We've messed up so badly. We've messed up relationships. We've messed up our hearts and minds, our lives. It's our own sin. It's our own lying. It's our own lust. Our own greed. Our own whatever it looks like. It's our own sin. Lord, we thank you for Jesus. We need him so badly, but we want to praise you that we have him, that you're the God who's so loved that you gave Jesus to us. And as we gather around this table, Lord, fill our hearts with faith to believe that Jesus will do what only he can do, that he wants to raise us up, that he wants to give us new hearts, that he wants to create a new life in us. And I pray we would trust in Jesus today. Be exalted, Father, in us. Be glorified right now in the way we look at Jesus. We thank you for Christ and we pray it in his name. Amen.